Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Katie and our dirty laundry. And we're Hi. back to talk about back. Our dirty laundry. Oh, there's always so much. I before we get started, because I know you're gonna teach us all about ERA stuff, or at least get started. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I am furious and disgusted and sad and angry because my state that I live in is the second state to ban transgender athletes. Um and we, it's the first woman governor signed it into law. And I'm going to send you a picture that we can post on our website. And I want you to tell me what you think about this picture of her signing into law that transgender athletes cannot play sports okay. or they're like with okay. their actual gender. They'd have to be, they'd have to, if they want to play sports, they have to go with what um, sex was assigned to them at birth. Okay. Here's the picture. Okay. Do you have a, like a barf bag ready? I for? can't wait. Okay. <laughs> I just texted you. I know Kim Reynolds. I mean, I don't know, know her. Oh, I was just going to say, you know her personally? Because if you have no, her number, no. I've got some choice words. Uh, okay. So here's the picture. <laughs> did you get it? Oh, gosh. I did. I got it. Describe it so for who our listeners. Is this group? Like, it appears to be a large group of very young women, maybe like high school age and even younger. But I'm mm-hmm. also just getting old, so that could be, <laughs> that could be part of it. Um, the majority of whom are also very blonde, and I mean, all it, of whom are white. white yeah, um, standing it, around her as she signs this piece. It of looks like like a teenage Aryan Nation girls group. That's what yeah. it looked like to me. And it's yeah. them. She's signing into law the transgender athlete ban against girls and women. And guess who she invited to come to this signing? White girls with long blonde hair to like cheer mm-hmm. on the signing of this bill. It's yeah. gross. It makes me want to throw my phone across the room. And I think what makes me upset too is, you know, it's been on, on Twitter, social media this morning, you know, people expressing their frustration. And I, someone tweeted that, uh, and I, I think trying to to really call people's attention to this bill and as someone who's very against this bill to say, like, you know, this morning a coach had to wake up and think about how they're going to tell one of their team members that they can't be on the team anymore. And they're going to have to tell the other teammates that she can't be on the team anymore. And like, ha- like, this is just a really shitty day. And someone else tweeted back, like, why the fuck do they have to say that? They can say no. Like that, I think that's the part that I'm extra mad about is, especially during Women's History Month, and it really goes back to our mini-sub this week where we talked about how to celebrate women's history. And if you are a cis het woman, the way you celebrate it is by saying, my kids aren't going to play sports on teams that discriminate against transgender girls. Or Mm -hmm. like you, it can't be that, that like sitting at that level of bulletin board inclusiveness or like, like, Oh, I'm learning about these really interesting women. No, it has to be us saying, fuck you. That's not going to happen. And we are going to have co-ed sports now. So ha ha, or we're going to um, boycott athletics and whether it's students Mm -hmm. or athletes, the student athletes or the coaches or the parents, like I just kept thinking my kids are too young to be in sports right now, but if that were the case, why would I want my daughter to participate in a sport that discriminates like that? And and then I was also mad because there are legit, well-documented abuses against young women in athletics, whether it's sexual mm-hmm. abuse or mm-hmm. discrimination in terms of being underfunded relative to boy sports. Like there's actual problems that we could talk through. But no, what we're going to do is say that we don't want to give transgender girls some sort of competitive edge. I honestly don't even know what their arguments are. It just makes me so mad. I can't even tell you. So anyway, just to put that on people's radars. And if you are in a place in Texas, in Iowa, like all of these places that are passing anti-trans legislation, 
especially if like we are cis het women the that we can't be on the sidelines that can't just be a fight that trans people engage in and we like feel bad about on the sidelines so what what are we doing to stand up and be in solidarity and i maybe this is a problematic metaphor but i was thinking like what if the law said um kids of color can't be on the same team as white kids anymore mm-hmm. and would you as a parent of a white kid be like oh that's so sad well off yeah. to football I hope not, you know, and right. I know that racial identity is different than gender identity, but like the, what, it just makes me so mad. I'm clearly not very articulate about it, but I just, I, I, I want the, the cishet parents who listen to this to say, what am I going to do? How am I going to be in solidarity with people? Because yeah. we can't yeah. sit on the sidelines. It's not okay. Right. Right. I also think like looking at that picture that you sent, like the other pictures that we've seen of, you know, angry white people in mobs yelling against CRT or banning books or burning them or whatever, like how embarrassing for these girls as they grow up. I hope it's embarrassing for them. I hope they're ashamed. Yeah. Yeah. It will be. But like, and how many of them are going along with what their parents have told them though, too? Like, I mean... Yeah. Well, and to link it to feminism, it's, I'm sure a lot of these young women, I mean, I don't know, I haven't talked to them, but I can imagine that for them, this is a feminist issue, like uh, girl mm-hmm. power. I'm standing mm-hmm. up for girls. Fuck that. No, you're not. And that's that. Like it just, that picture is gross. If mm-hmm. you want to be fueled by rage today and you aren't already, or you don't have enough, look at it and <laughs> let that just sink in where all of this intersects race, gender, Sexual, like all of it intersects, and it is the project of some of these politicians to connect those dots and just exclude and discriminate yeah. against and do harm to, and it's awful. So, and do continue to promote white supremacy and heterosexual supremacy and all of the dominant narratives that they belong to, just to try to keep power in those same groups. So. Yeah. Got to keep white girls happy. What can I say? Uh, So on that (laughs) note, teach me all about the ERA. I know almost nothing. I know what it stands for. And I know that it hasn't been enacted, like that there are states that voted for it, but not enough. And so it's kind of in like another region of never passing. Right. Okay. But yes. I don't so even pass Congress, but wasn't ratified because amendments have to be ratified by two thirds of the states. Even if Congress passes them, they don't automatically become laws like other laws do because it's an amendment to the Constitution. It has to be rat- ratified. So, yes, we are going to talk about the ERA. And I'm not sure how long it will take us to get through this or other side note rabbit holes, whatever. So we'll just see. We'll just go along for a little bit and see when a good stopping point is and then do another episode as we do. As we do. If you're you're new to this podcast, welcome. We are two longtime childhood friends, white women ourselves, straight, cis, raised Christian, like, you know, you name it, middle class, upper middle class. So here's the deal. We tell each other stories about what we're learning. We get really mad. Sometimes we cuss, sometimes we laugh and we're, we want people to be equally agitated and start taking actions in their lives that are in better solidarity with folks towards yeah. justice. And think more critically about our history. Yes. Um, so yes, definitely a history lesson today about the equal rights amendment, which I also knew very little about the history of, and I would bet that most people know very little about mm-hmm. the history of, um, Given that, like a recent poll that was done, I don't remember who did this or when exactly it was done, but there was some recent poll of Americans that found that 72% of Americans already think that equal protection of the sexes is part of the Constitution. (laughs) It's so terrible. That's like such a recipe for ignorance to flourish when people think it's already good. Like they're Yeah, like um, why do we need to pass this? It's already part of it. What's there's wrong? There's this you fascinating know? research by these two economists. Um I can't remember their first names, but their last names are Norton and Ariely. Um and they I'm probably mispronouncing that last name, but they wrote about this study where they asked people from across party politic lines um, what their ideal distribution of wealth is in society, like what levels of what kind of gaps would they be comfortable with? Like what's their best Mm -hmm. case scenario? And then what do they think 
it actually is. And what they were able to show is that the vast majority of people, regardless of party affiliation, actually want a way more equitable distribution of wealth so that the the gap between the rich and the poor is not nearly as big. It's like massive, yeah. you know, and yeah. that the the vast majority of people actually wanted a way better, like a way more equitable distribution of wealth. Um, and also the vast majority of people way underestimated reality. The gap. So it's yeah. this terrible situation. This is why education is so important because you're like, mm-hmm. wow, if you knew you have this desire that is not being realized, but you think is. That's a problem. And so that it just right. strikes me as being similar to that. Like, oh, isn't that oh, yeah. we already have equal rights. So why are why are people complaining? We're good. Yeah. Yeah. It's already in there. In <laughs> the same poll, 75% of people said they were in favor of protect equal protection of sexes being part of the Constitution. Hmm. So then the question is one, they already think it's in there. 75% of people favor it being in there. So why hasn't isn't it, it in there? Passed? <laughs> right. It's a great question. <laughs> right. Why is it not part of the constitution? But I do understand mm. part of the confusion in that I had to look up this part of it. So the 14th amendment is known. There's several things in the 14th amendment, but one thing it's known for is the equal protection clause. Mm-hmm. So equal protection under the law for all us citizens. So, a big question being why doesn't the 14th amendment cover sex discrimination? Oh, right. So like, why even need a separate amendment? Why Isn't do we need a separate it? amendment? Cause the 14th amendment, this is what section one of the 14th amendment actually says. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Hmm. Hmm. So that does like bring up the question, why, why doesn't the 14th Amendment cover what the ERA is trying to cover, because we'll just read now, we'll get back to it. But the wording of the ERA right now states, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So it's really just the Equal Protection Clause just highlighting sex. Highlighting sex. Okay. But why couldn't we just say that it's part of the 14th Amendment? The argument is the 14th Amendment was never written to protect sex, which Mm. is like, well, duh. Of course it wasn't. Just like the Constitution was never written to really encompass all (laughs) men as being created equal. Like, (laughs) But now we just act like it is. Now Mm -hmm. we're just like, oh, yes, this was this foreordained like thing Mm. where we were all just so noble and we said all men are created equal, even though we knew damn well that what the founders meant is all white men who are in this ruling class are created equal and Mm -hmm. black people are not included. Um, So... That's the wording difference. That's, I guess, the difference behind it. And also the Supreme Court then has reaffirmed that the 14th Amendment doesn't really protect sex, kind of, in some cases, if they decide that it should, but not really. Um, (laughs) Right? (laughs) Clear as Uh, mud. (laughs) I know, like, another childhood dear friend of ours is, um, like, a lawyer was trained in law and I just have always admired her ability to wade through that because you already lost me. <laughs> like I, I don't, I, I don't have a mind for legal details, but let's try. Let's oh my do gosh. It. I try to read <laughs> some of these things and I'm like, two sentences in brain shuts off. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it's saying. So the year after the 14th amendment passed, there was a woman who tried to apply it to women through the courts. What year did so, it pass? Do you know that? I'm just giving um, you like... 18, I want to say it had to be 1868 because this is the year after was 1869. It's like the, the bundle of amendments in reconstruction is how we always think of these yeah. teens amendments. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yep. a woman, try a white woman. Yes. Okay. So in 1869, um, Myra Bradwell tried to get the 14th Amendment to apply to equal protection of women under the law. So in 69, she passed the Illinois bar exam to become a lawyer. Mm-hmm. But 
Even though she passed the bar, the bar in Illinois would not seat her because it said, as a married woman, she could not enter into contracts without her husband's consent. And because part of being an attorney is entering into contracts with your clients, (laughs) that she therefore could not enter into those contracts because she's not allowed to because she was married and Mm. she had to have her husband's consent. So she couldn't really practice law. And so she couldn't be an attorney. So she took that to the Illinois Supreme court who agreed with that. She said the Illinois Supreme court said that Bradwell would be bound neither by her express contracts nor by those implied contracts, which is the policy of the law to create between attorney and client. The court reasoned that when the legislature enacted the laws of granting licenses to practice law, it did not intend to extend the privilege to women. So they said, sorry, you can't be an attorney. Hmm. So then Bradwell appeals this to the Supreme court, which surprise, surprise upheld the lower court ruling. They ruled eight to one Hmm. that the privileges and immunity clause of the 14th Amendment does not include the right to practice a profession. So there's some like that's not the amendment. Like that's not protected. Like that's not like a human right right or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have the right to practice any sort of a profession. But then Justice Joseph Bradley who wrote the opinion at this time, wrote this, which doesn't seem to have anything. I don't know. You won't be (laughs) shocked by what he says. Let me just read his asshole words. He says, the natural and proper timidity and delicacy, which belongs to the female sex, evidently unfits it for many of the occupations of civil life. The paramount destiny of and mission of woman are to fulfill the noble and benign offices of wife and mother. This is the law of the creator. Uh, sorry, I'm I mean, sure I people know that this is like, It's so gross. <laughs> I know this is like 1870s, as people would say, well, but at the time, I mean, we no, no. rebuked the at the time argument it's 8 a million times. Argument. Yeah. But this, it's just disgusting. It's just whatever. The timidity and delicacy, which belongs to the female sex, like. uh, And also, he clearly never met anyone like us, but. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, I'm sure he may have and just dismissed it or like, you're a witch, you know. Yeah. Burn. Burn burn you at the stake. It's so, there's so many layers of grossness in that too, like calling on the law of the creator. Not supposed to be something you think about in the application of laws in our country this is when people are like oh christians are under attack i'm like okay let's take a good hard look at our history and just see how deep this goes like that's just bonkers and okay so he was writing the majority opinion did you read the dissent majority opinion no i don't know what the dissent was but i did look into because i was like obviously women got admitted to practice law in other states and like down the line but i don't think there was another supreme court ruling that Mm. overturned that so i'm like so how did that happen mm -hmm. um that women were allowed Mm. to practice when there's a supreme court ruling saying that they don't have to be Mm -hmm. um so there was in washington dc a woman named belva lockwood who lobbied congress then to pass an anti-discrimination bill to allow women to practice in federal courts And so it passed Congress in 1879 and was then signed into law by President Rutherford B. Hayes. So I guess this is the way that the system works, that you have to then, if if the Supreme Court says the law doesn't allow it, then you just have to get the laws changed. Then you have to go to Congress and get that changed. I am very curious to what the talking points were to convince the legislators to vote for that bill. I'm always curious about that. Like, of course, I want to say, like, it's just the right thing to do. But I know that that doesn't always persuade people. So I'm I'm curious, you know, what what arguments were used to get them on board for that. I know. I know. The background tell of it. They could all be their own episodes. I know. know. The other thing that was interesting, though, that I did notice when I was looking at Belva Lockwood, this woman who lobbied Congress, Mm -hmm. is that she was actually technically the first woman to run for president. 
Hmm. Her name was on the ballot in 1884 and 1888. Hmm. And the reason for that, that people might remember from previous episodes, is that Victoria Woodhull, who was regularly cited as the first woman to be on the ballot, was actually not old enough to run Hmm. when her name was on the ballot. But nobody really cared because they're like, ha ha, she's a woman. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, it was invalid anyway. Invalid on two accounts. But Mm. um, Lockwood was the first one who was legally allowed to run based on her age, who was then on the ballot. Interesting. Interesting. I want to know more about her. Interesting rabbit hole to go down. so many rabbit holes. Another time. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. So in the (laughs) 1970s. Then the Supreme Court did start to apply the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause to some sex discrimination cases, finding that some of them were per, were unequal treatment on the basis of gender. Um, mm-hmm. In 1976, they ruled that under the 14th Amendment, men and women could be treated differently under the law only if it served a, quote, important governmental objective. I don't know what the fuck that means, mm-hmm. and I didn't really <laughs> look into mm-hmm. it anymore. Um, yes, our legalese people would probably mm. know more than that. But so they did say it does protect the 14th Amendment, but the end result of that, like, ambiguous serving an important government objective is, is that they can just rule however they want to. And it just depends on who the justices are and how they're interpreting it mm-hmm. from case to case. Um And then there's also this difference, too, that's legal that I don't understand about courts evaluating cases um, under different terms. So they can either – there's several different categories, but the um, category they look at sex discrimination is under an intermediate standard of review. And that's as opposed to a strict scrutiny, which is the highest level of judicial review that applies to, like, cases of racial bias. Hmm. based this, on the 14th Amendment. I mean, this is not to you, but like my eyes just rolled into I know. the back of the head like, I know. I what don't, it I don't get it. basically okay. means. I know. What it basically means is that under the way that it stands now, claims of sex discrimination require like extremely, extremely high level, uh, levels of evidence got it. in order to be proven. Okay. So it's not really something that we can fall back on to guarantee At least not the way that the Supreme Court is interpreting things now, because as recently as 2010, I guess, um, there's on the record statement of Justice Scalia saying that the 14th Amendment does not prohibit against sex discrimination. But like, is anyone really surprised? Thank you, Scalia. Um, So the 14th Amendment doesn't protect against sex discrimination now. It was never intended to when it was written. It maybe could, but it depends on who's on there. So is that, was that Scalia was like a strict construct, whatever, strict interpretationist, whatever that's called. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So wanting to think about like, not just the letter of the law, but like the intentions of the founders, like, oh, they didn't intend for it to be that. So we have to follow that. Um, Is that, was that his reason or did he have a reason why the 14th Amendment didn't apply? Um, I don't, I don't okay. know any more of the details of it. I would guess it has something to do with that because he okay. is one of those original intent people. Uh, yeah. Um, right. So we get back now, finally, 20 minutes in to <laughs> the ERA. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Um, <laughs> one, another quick question. Sorry. I swear to God, I'll let you keep talking yeah. about this. Like the 14th. Okay. The, the ERA is talking about sex, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Are they distinguishing between sex and gender? Are those treated as like synonymous in this amendment? What's the set? Like, I mean, I thought about that and wondered um, about that and how it would be interpreted. They, it does always use sex as the wording. Okay. So I'm not sure how they, then it's interpreted um, by people when we look at all of the issues we were just talking about today with trans discrimination. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I had to look up background on the ERA because as you also said, I know very little about it. So Google, 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 here we come looking up the ERA. I immediately came across the website equalrightsamendment.org. Now, just from the website, you can tell this is obviously going to be a pro thing mm-hmm. unless somebody on the other side got to it first and it's just like shooting it down, but it's, oh, not. Yeah. it's very pro ERA. So we're going to get that perspective from this website. Um, 
And right from the get-go, it's like red flag city. Mm. When you click on the history, it immediately starts with centering the Seneca Falls Convention (laughs) as the start of like women's suffrage. So their Mm -hmm. history page says, from the first visible public demand for women's suffrage in 1848 by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott at the first women's rights convention Mm -hmm. in Seneca Falls, New York. Mm To the introduction of the Equal Rights Amendment by Alice Paul in 1923, the fight for gender equality is not over. Mm-hmm. So, so from white we, lady to white lady, we've been fighting hard. Right. So if you're just jumping in, if this is your first time you like searched up an episode on a podcast <laughs> about the ERA and you don't know anything about the background and haven't been listening, go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes on why it's so problematic to start the women's movement with Seneca Falls in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, the issues with, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, with Susan B. Anthony, with Alice Paul. We're going to mm-hmm. get into her a little bit more, obviously, in this episode. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of problems with that. So mm-hmm. if if you see that as like a, you know, starting point for anybody, just a little red flag, not mm-hmm. to mean that mm-hmm. it should like you know, disrupt anything else going on, but there just should be a little bit in the back mm-hmm. of your mind. So the Equal Rights Amendment was first introduced by Alice Paul. Previous listeners may also remember <laughs> some of the things we talked about <laughs> with Alice Paul. If not, brief recap. Um, Alice Paul was the organ. She was a suffragist. Um, she was we talked about her mainly because she organized the women's suffrage procession in Washington, D.C. in 1913 that was held the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. And Paul was the primary organizer of that. What people may also remember is that there was a bit of a skerfuffle between the white organizers of the parade and black suffragists who wanted to participate in that. Um, which led to Ida Wells jumping in part of the segregated march. But also, rabbit hole, as I was looking up more of those details of that to get more into Alice Paul, there's apparently some contention over that whole story and Mm. whether or not that is truly what happened. Mm. I still question it, though, because the people who are writing to defend Alice Paul, it just seems very... Apologist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems very much like trying to like, you know, put the put a doily over a piece of shit. As we we like to say. Get the shit doily. (laughs) We gotta cover this up with some lace, girls. I'm picturing just like a warehouse filled with shit doilies that like a bunch of white feminist organizations have on back order. Like, yeah, we need more shit doilies. Just crocheting, just crocheting <laughs> these doilies like mad. Um, so, so this Equal Rights Amendment webpage like then pointed you towards going to AlicePaul.org to mm-hmm. read more about her. And this is where I found this paper, which is like a Q and A form. It's called Alice Paul Racism and the 1913 First National Suffrage March. Hmm. And so it's asking like questions and answering it. And this author is saying, yes, black women face discrimination and were not included in organizing committees. Their input was not initially sought in determining participation and they were treated as other. But Hmm. the author says, no, it's not true that black women were segregated during the march. She says that There is evidence that Alice Paul was recruiting both black and white marchers when some local D.C. women objected to black participation. They felt their reputations would be damaged if they marched alongside black women. So many people felt that, you know, this would bring them some disrepute. But it was local, according to this lady. So then there started this, like, discussion via letters and telegrams that apparently can still be found between Alice Paul um, and the National Women's Suffrage Association um, leaders who, who were trying to decide what they should do about this. So one possibility that got raised is that women could march together in one section. Um, Alice apparently remembered this discussion in her 1972 oral history, and they and a lot of sources cite her memory as like the fact of the thing, but mm-hmm. it's like, you're telling your own history 50 mm-hmm. years later. Of course, you're not going to like 
go and tell on yourself and how you were shitty at that point. Mm. Anyway, but apparently another organizer, Mary Ritter Beard, reached out to African-Americans in New York and asked for their input. So Beard then wrote Paul a letter about those conversations, and she told Paul, unsurprisingly, that the Black women wanted to march wherever they chose to. Right. And also, okay, just let me, so I'm clear. So one of the solutions was like, let's have a separate desegregated section? No, I think they were saying either like, let's have a segregated section. I mean, initially, they weren't like... like any segregate, like, that's what I'm trying to wrap my mind around is like, even if you're like, okay, white supremacist ladies, your group can be here. Yeah. That you don't have to march with anybody. Then that is a segregated march. Like, yeah. Yeah. having some cordoned off space where anyone else can't go, even like, that's still, even if you're not saying the entire march is segregated, still saying like, well, but this part of it can be, is still yeah. pro segregation. Which apparently is at the end, what they came to, and this is even the wording of this person, is that the National Women's Suffrage Association and Paul acceded to the wishes of the black women. Which makes it seem like like you had to give in. You couldn't just, like, agree that they were right, that they should march wherever. Like, okay, we'll give in to you. You can march wherever. Nonetheless, they did stop recruiting the involvement of other black women at that part. So they were definitely not active in trying to bring women in. So the way it sounds is there was this group of white women who were like, we can't do this. It's going to ruin our reputations. (laughs) They had these discussions. The black women were like, no, we want to march wherever. And Alice Paul and NAWSA were like, okay, fine. But also let's try to minimize black people's involvement at all. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't turn mm-hmm. into this whole, whole bigger skerfuffle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so lastly, part of this, then this woman addresses like who told Ida B. Wells then that she had to march separately from her state delegation. And their answer is we probably will never know that answer for certain. Mm-hmm. They said there's only one primary source for the Wells story, which was told in the Chicago Tribune. Um, and that contra or contradicts information um, that was, that says this earlier decision that Paul and the national organization had made. So the report said that as the women were all getting together to march, that Miss Stone of the National Suffrage Association and the woman in charge of the entire parade has advised us to keep our delegation entirely white. So Alice Paul was the head of the committee organizing the parade. However, they're saying that there's this other lady, Glenna Smith, who was described as the director of the parade. And for that reason, when they say the woman in charge of the entire parade, you can't be sure if that was Alice Paul or if it was this Glenna Smith. But either so maybe way, it was they're someone all, else. You can't tell me they aren't right, in so meetings who, together. Who like, who oh no, that's cares. stupid. Right? That's no. right. Like, how does right. that like <laughs> dismiss yeah. their? right whatever no i mean we need a we need a sound effect that's just like a giant farting sound or like a sad trombone like no uh no it's super 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 apologist this whole thing it's just it's garbage i don't like it i don't buy it whatever and besides that what we do know also from our previous episode talking about like where were the white women in the civil rights fights for you know voting rights for black people after anti-lynching like any of these yeah, campaigns all of that right? kind of stuff is right. that we know that when Alice Paul and her National Women's Party were approached about any of those things they were shut down immediately like the descriptions of the National Women's Party was that it was a single-minded single-issue group Alice Paul had zero room for any other focus Mm -hmm. besides the ERA. That was all it cared about. And it wasn't going to hold hands or work together or do anything with anybody else, Mm -hmm. which is like how very white woman of you, Alice Paul, like she picked her thing with the ERA and she didn't want anything to do with anything else. Mm -hmm. So yes, she was incredibly instrumental in the ERA, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but she did it once again at the expense of helping anyone else out. It's such a, it just typical. is such a trend of what we're learning about the, with these women, white women leaders of feminist organizations, whether it's suffragists or like other orgs. And now we're learning about it with this, that it's this like show up for me when I need you. And then I'm still going to like need to be your boss, but I'm mm-hmm. not going to ever show up for you. Right. That yep. general MO is yep. annoying. 
yeah, just embodied by Alice Paul in this story for sure. In any case, she introduced the ERA first in 1923 at the 75th anniversary of the Seneca Falls Convention. We love an anniversary. We love anniversaries. <laughs> and at that time, she called it the Lucretia Mott Amendment. Mm. So another side note, there is another woman, Crystal Eastman, who's another name that sometimes comes up with the ERA. She was a co-founder of the National Women's Party with Alice Paul Mm -hmm. and sometimes credited for also co-authoring the ERA with Paul. Um, Mm -hmm. But unsurprisingly, she's like pretty much written out of the history of the ERA. Is this like a a Matilda Jocelyn Gage situation where she started to critique them and like, hey, wait a second, we're not being good about these things and they're like bye here's the eject button and you just fell out you know yeah or just like a process of like paul's history of wanting to make herself the only one like Mm -hmm. maybe a susan b anthony like Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna write anybody else into that Mm -hmm. i don't know that's another rabbit hole we could go down for sure but she gave this speech that was very famous the right the same year that the 19th amendment was passed that was called um now we can begin that just talked about how passage of the 19th Amendment was just the start of assuring equality for women. Mm-hmm. And so she first brought up this idea of like an equal rights fight after the voting rights were passed. So Alice Paul did. No, no, no. Crystal, oh, Crystal Eastman. Eastman. Got it. Okay. So but she's also a white woman. Yes. She's okay. also a white woman. And of course. founded the NWP. When we learned about the suffrage movement months and months ago in our one of that was our first season, I guess, um, that the 19th Amendment was not a like crossing of a finish line for so many women. No, so not at all. Yeah. So she seems to be on board with that. But what the question of whether or not she's mm-hmm. on board with that just for the white ladies yeah, right. or for other people. Okay. I don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the first wording of the Lucretia Mott Amendment that was introduced by Paul Red. Men and women shall have equal rights throughout the United States and every place subject to its jurisdiction. So what are your just initial thoughts about that statement? Any? Well, my very initial sh- thought was like, it's short. That's it. Yeah. You know, like it's very <laughs> short and sweet. Yeah. Um, of course, because of my rant at the beginning, like I'm also thinking of, of how that language sort of falls apart to our ears. Like mm-hmm. m- men and women is just already not, those aren't great descriptors but this is where i do think historical context is helpful like i the term transgender did not exist exist um, yeah. for these for these people although i will say like other cultural communities particularly native communities had two spirit people like the, the transgender people have always existed and there have been other communities that honored them considered them like wonderful and special members of the community. So like thinking about this society at this time, that does not surprise me that that language was used. Um, yeah, I guess it just seems like that's it is kind of my yeah. reaction. What was yours? Yeah. I mean, my reaction to it was like before having thought more critically and more deeply about any of this, had I read this sentence, you know, as a, junior high, high school, college age person, I would have just been like, well, duh, who would have any problem with that? Like, what's, what's the issue? Mm. How is that something that people could have been fighting over for Mm. the past 100 years? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh, can I, the other thing that I think is crossing my mind a little bit is this, the distinction between equality and equity and just thinking about the like unique and special harms or reasons Mm -hmm. why, we mm-hmm. might need something more than equal protection that we yep, need. Yep, yep. Like I'm, I'm thinking about lots of different communities. Like we need reparations. We need proactive protections that, that are based on justice and not necessarily based on equality. I'm like, right. I think in many instances I'm very pro equality, but that it's not necessarily the frame to apply to everything. If we're hoping for justice, like sometimes equality right. actually doesn't move us to justice. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, perfect. So that gets into like these two camps of opposition Mm. to the ERA that immediately started off. So Mm. one we obviously know is going to be the the social conservative opposition to it, who are just like men and women are not equal. They are, you know, foreordained by the creator to be unequal, as we Mm. read earlier in the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court decision, this kind of separate spheres 
ideology that continues to circulate in the social conservative realm. So that and is one side. Separate spheres. Like I keep thinking uh, back to our early season about suffrage that like Haudenosaunee women had separate roles, but they were absolutely fundamental to the functioning of their community and like highly regarded and respected and powerful. Like there weren't, Mm -hmm. I think it's not just separate spheres. It's, it's a hierarchy of spheres. Like you stay here and we're the boss of you. Like those, I think I have less of a problem with separate spheres. Sometimes if there is genuine power sharing, but this is not that in our world. Yeah. Not, not, not in the social conservative world. No, Mm -hmm. not at all. Um, But the other, I think less obvious um, camp against the ERAs speaking exactly to what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. And, and by less obvious, I mean less obvious to us middle class white women who mm-hmm. would not think of this. Mm-hmm. And that is the, one of the biggest oppositions to it were activists who had fought for labor protections mm-hmm. for women. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of women who had been working very hard to protect working class women from some like discrimination in labor and also, you know, protection based on hours or safe working conditions, maternity issues, childcare issues, all of those things that we are still talking about now. Mm-hmm. And they were saying, if we pass the ERA, then we're going to undo all of those protections mm-hmm. because now these businesses who have been fighting against this forever are going to say, you know, we don't have to afford this equal protection anymore because you passed this equal equal right oh so you don't we don't need special protections because yeah. there's the equal right 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 so right. that way there's no more special protections mm-hmm. based on sex mm-hmm. because now that would be illegal because you're supposed to be treated equally so we can't mm-hmm. have anything that you know might give maternity leave or might mm-hmm. you know make your hours different based on your childcare whatever mm-hmm. there were so um those were the two main fights against it. So Alice Paul and the Women's Party said that women should just be equal, should be open to these equal terms with men in all regards, even if they had to sacrifice benefits that were given through protective legislations. Mm. Um, Mm. Then there were the opposing groups. There were groups like the Women's Joint Congressional Committee, um, who believed that the loss of those benefits to women would not be worth the supposed gain to them and equality. And so very early on in the early 1920s, there were several debates that were hosted between prominent um, feminists, all women who would consider themselves feminists Mm -hmm. and who fought for suffrage, but who were not on the same Mm -hmm. ground when it came to the ERA. So there was a debate between um, Doris Stevens and Alice Hamilton or two of the names, their perspectives, and they just reflected these tensions between the feminist movement and two different approaches towards gender equality. One was like, there's this common humanity between men and women, Mm -hmm. and we're all basically we should be on the same ground. There shouldn't be any distinction. And there was the other side that's just recognizing, as you were saying, that equality is not the same as equity and that there are unique experiences to women that are different from men. And there should be recognition for those specific needs. Especially in, but not just this, but especially in a society we know as patriarchal and misogynistic. But I think even beyond that, there might be reasons to think through why, there might be different needs. I don't know. I, I'm curious if these debates were still happening among white women or where indigenous women and women of color would have come into play in the debates. Like what, what were their, and not that there's like a singular yeah. monolithic perspective, but I'm just curious. Were these yeah, like and white I'm sure, ladies like, fighting? Yeah. I mean, all of this that's obviously public and written in the history is a mm-hmm. bunch of white lady shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not a lot that is said about what black women had to say at this point. But black women were also like having to fight their own fight on their own, too. I would think that this would be maybe one of those things where they would be like, don't ask us for our help. Mm-hmm. You're not helping us. You know, well, like and- you want nothing to do with trying to actually secure our voting rights. So don't come to me about the ERA. The Just thinking about what we learned during the suffrage movement and then our last mini-sode about the history of Women's History Month, where that all came from, just thinking about Black women, Indigenous women, brown women, like the ways that they're like – 
if we're only looking through a lens of feminism, then just certain life experiences get erased. And so the, and the ways that we've learned about whether it's voting rights or, I mean, reproductive justice, whatever we've been learning about thus far, where women of color have had a much more nuanced contextualized response to things and their, their priorities are connected to community needs in ways that white women activists tend to think about like my individual life needs to be Uh better in these ways. And so Uh I am only thinking about sex, whereas for women of color, that it is thinking about all of the ways that these things intersect and that actually there are reasons to be concerned about other issues way before we're concerned about this. So maybe, I don't know, maybe that's, and it would be interesting to know like that these white women who are cited as, as giving the pro labor kind of side, what their involvement is with women of color, because Mm -hmm. we know that women of color largely have been in the labor force. Like disproportionately represented in those jobs. Yeah. So they may be, um, they may have had more connection to them too. Um, so just a few more, I know I kind of touched on these, but like the, their arguments from the labor side is there was legislation that included mandated minimum wages, safety regulations, restricted daily and weekly hours, lunch breaks, maternity provisions, that kind of thing that would be beneficial to the majority of women who were working out of like economic necessity, not because mm-hmm. they wanted to like leave the home and have some sort of personal fulfillment, like the Betty Friedan kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but like they're working to actually support their own families and those protections are important for them to keep. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, um, and, and then, so this is all going on in the early 1920s and the ERA was first introduced to Congress in 1921 by U.S. Senator Charles Curtis, who was vice president for Herbert Hoover. I'm like, this hmm. just goes to show you that no one's ever going to remember who was vice president because I've never heard of that man's <laughs> life, name in my life. Um, <laughs> but he first introduced it in October of 1921. It has been introduced in it was introduced in every congressional session between 1921 and 1972, but almost never reached the floor for a Mm -hmm. vote. It was usually blocked in committee, except for in 1946, when it was defeated in the Senate by a vote of 38 to 35, Mm -hmm. um, which was not a supermajority of two thirds. So Mm -hmm. there's one other thing that like people tried to tack on to get it to pass a few times. And this was something called the Hayden writer. Um, It was introduced by Arizona Senator Carl Hayden. And so it added a sentence to the ERA to keep special protections for women. Hmm. So it was said the provisions of this article shall not be construed to impair any rights, benefits, or exemptions now or hereafter conferred by law upon persons of the female sex. Hmm. So they thought that maybe that would be more appealing to some of the opponents who rejected it based on all of these labor um, objections mm-hmm. because unions were very against it. Mm-hmm. Um but the original supporters of the ERA thought that it just negated the purpose of the amendment in whole. And so then mm. they would never support it when it was mm. put through with that writer. Mm. So it was like this no, no win situation mm-hmm. forever. Um, then sometimes this is also going to be really entertaining to you. In <laughs> 1943, Alice Paul rewrote the ERA so that would better reflect the language of other amendments and kind of match the language of that. And also, ahem, 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 to name it after herself. (laughs) Because when she rewrote it, she then called it the Alice Paul Amendment. Mm -hmm. Like, how narcissist are some of these women? (laughs) It's crazy. You started by calling it the Lucretia Ma Amendment. Why would you change it to name it after yourself? You... That's a lot. Like, look that's in a, a mirror, lot. Alice. What? I think she is. I she think is. that's all she she's is. doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. This oh. is so, it's so fascinating. Like, okay, so oh, just a point of clarification, too. When an amendment, it has to pass Congress, but then it has to be ratified by the states, right? Like, yes. it can't yeah. just pass the House and the Senate. Um, it, okay, so if you were voting on it, what would you vote for? I know we're not even to like the seventies yeah. and a whole bunch of stuff yet, but like, yeah, let's yeah. say it's 1946 or whatever, what, and you were, 
there, would would you vote for it or not? I mean, I think if I understood the Labor Party's argument against it mm-hmm. and understood that the way that, like, uh, capitalism and white supremacy works, like, I could mm-hmm. easily see it being taken advantage of to wipe all of those protections mm-hmm. out from from women. And mm-hmm. so I don't know. I don't I think that I may have opposed it based on those based on those grounds. But I don't know yeah. because the other yeah. argument is like Crystal Eastman, the woman that we talked about who may have co-authored it with Alice Paul, rejected that argument of the protections for women because she's saying all those special protections do is just open women up to more discrimination. Mm. You know, if you're saying you have to protect women, you know, you have to give them some sort of like maternity protections or hours protections or lifting heavy things protections, then women just aren't going to get hired because people aren't going to want to like have Mm. to give them those differences. So then they're going to find a way just to not hire them in the first place. I don't know. Mm. It's so hard. I mean, having had a kid recently, I just think like, not all of those things are the same, even like my ability to lift a box or a typewriter or whatever some of these cases have been about is different than my need is like a biological animal who just pushed another living creature out of my coochie and needs to like nurse a baby and recover. And like, there's mm-hmm. just shit I need to do to take care of myself in that moment. And P.S. What I just did is actually benefiting like the survival of our species. So can I get right. a little something for that? You know, it it feels like there are some special protections that I can actually, I might even be able to understand that argument, but other yep. special protections, I'm like, no, there are se- it's a separate category. Um, yep. Yeah. I, I think too that this idea of like equal protection, part of me wonders if it isn't just really focused on the core of the problem, which is a denial of, of rights or resources or access that that's not okay. It has nothing to do with like additional supports or proactive things. I don't know. Maybe that just sidesteps and like kicks the can down the road, but I kind of want the amendment to just be like, don't be shitty period. (laughs) Can't you Uh, you figure out what that means? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like stop being shitty. Right. Mm. And, And it does go to the, the nuances and distinction between like equality and still acknowledging difference, mm-hmm. like allowing differences to be present and still treating people fairly. Fairly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think too, there's just that to, like a recognition of systemic structural harm that has been done for generations and wanting to disrupt that and repair, like ad- address it, like, provide compensation for that or to, you know, it's not just enough to like stop, stop something. It's like with the end of slavery, like you're free. Yay. Well, reparations are about saying like, oh, also we stole your labor and life and like everything for a couple hundred years. So we owe you, you know? And I, I don't, I think that's part of it that is lost for me too. Like I, I want there to be an acknowledgement of identity, but I also want it to be within a socio-historical context to understand that those, the ways that those identities have mattered to people. I think what's tricky too, is when those identities are socially constructed and are ever shifting, Mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to like wrap your hands around it. Or even if you will have like special protections, then automatically people have to be able to claim like, well, so I am part of that group and here's how, which can lead to some gross policing to yeah. it's just, again, it's like the root cause of the problem is people being shitty. Just yeah. like, that's <laughs> what it is. So just yep. stop mm-hmm. doing that. Stop. Like stop love people, like have mutual concern for them, like care for each other. Why, the, why is that so fucking hard? Yeah. No. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah. That's- so, okay. So she rewrote it and this is what, how it reads mm. now. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Whatever. It says the same thing. It doesn't, it's just worded more like the 14th Amendment is worded. Um, and it changed nothing about who supported or opposed it. Right. right, Like, it's, it's the same. But what did surprise me when I was doing research about this, 
was that the ERA had support by both the Republicans and Democratic parties beginning in the 1940s. Both of them added their support to the ERA to their official platforms Mm. in the 1940s and had it on their platforms throughout all of this time that all of this is being argued and debated on, Mm. which was kind of surprising to me. Um, and even that there there was more discussion and more dissent on it in the Democratic Party. And they didn't come to any sort of unified support of the ERA until 1972. There was this whole thing in the Democratic National Convention in 1960 where they proposed to endorse the ERA. And then it was rejected because of dissent from groups like the American Civil Liberties Union, um, mm. the AFL-CIO, the American mm. Federation of Teachers, Americans for Democratic Action, the American Nurses Association, mm. the Women's Division of the Methodist Church, and the National Councils of Jewish, Catholic, and Negro Women mm. all opposed um, support of the ERA on the Democratic platform mm. in the 1960 convention. Mm. Um, Despite that, JFK was the presidential candidate, and in October of 1960, he announced his support of the ERA um, in a letter to the chairman of the National Women's Party. But it his verbal support didn't really match what happened in his actual cabinet and mm-hmm. in the people well, that he pointed in the group. Well, that's what I was just going to say. Like, you can look at the Republican and Democratic Party apparatuses saying, like, sure. And yet, look at the last 80 years of how they've acted. Like, I'm not thrilled with, you, you know. Right. It does. So what? So you put that as a party platform plank or whatever they're called. Like, so what? What have you done? Like, like what what's you, actually right? happened? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he put mm. um, Esther Pearson was the highest ranking woman in his administration. She was assistant secretary of labor. And she had publicly opposed the ERA huh. based on beliefs that it would weaken protective labor legislation. Um, and mm. she said that she preferred the specific bills for specific ills approach to equal rights. Mm. So just tackling it's catchy. Each it's problem. catchy. Mm-hmm. You like <laughs> you it? You can put it on a magnet on your fridge. <laughs> um, so, and then his ties basically to labor unions throughout that mm-hmm. just meant that really his administration was not supportive of it in the way it actually acted. He also had a president's commission on the status of women to investigate the problem of sex discrimination in the United States, which was chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt. And Eleanor Roosevelt was also um, against the ERA. Although at that point in time, she didn't, she no longer spoke against it publicly. Hmm. Um, And then later in the sixties, she thought that due to unionization, the ERA was no longer a threat to women's protections in labor as it once would have been. And so Mm -hmm. she said, as far as she was concerned, women can have it if they want it. (laughs) You just like threw up her hands. Whatever. Like, whatever. You just kind of blew my mind picturing Eleanor Roosevelt alive in the sixties. I did not realize until you just said that, that she is frozen in my mind as having like, materialized in the 30s as like a fully grown middle-aged woman and then was there in the 40s and then like dissipates yeah i know i didn't think of that either when did she die you're totally right do you Um, know gotta look it up no i don't Um, have it right in front of me look it up do you have a guess oh i would think by the 70s Mm -hmm. she had later yeah it says 1962 But that's still like, that is one of the things that always just blows my mind about history, the ways that people overlap. Cause we do freeze yeah. them. We freeze events. We've talked about this, how like mm-hmm. you have people whose grandparents were enslaved who are alive right yeah. now. Like that is not that far away, but we have these things like frozen, but there's some, how I'm like, I can't picture Eleanor Roosevelt like in a wrap dress or like a <laughs> jumpsuit. I mean, maybe she didn't wear that, but I, I yeah. just can't. No, it just feels no, so no. anachronistic to think of her in different time periods. Huh. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So basically she like did the like mom giving up to the kid with a lollipop and was like, fine, just have it. But Whatever. she was never really like for it. She never really endorsed the ERA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, and she also said that the commission, okay. So she chaired this commission. She died shortly after, obviously, cause this was yeah. 1960. She died in 1962 and the chair, 
um, report, the chair of the commission reported after her death that she believed that the ERA, that no ERA was needed because the Supreme Court could give sex the same suspect test as race and origin through their interpretation of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments of the Constitution. Mm. I, again, it just goes back to like people could choose to not be shitty. Yep. Yeah. And, and ultimately, like any law you put forward, whatever, if people are committed to shittiness, they will find a way. It doesn't mean I'm, I don't recognize the importance of fighting for those laws to make it harder or to, to be like a bulwark against that. But I, of course, if someone's super committed to discriminating against trans people or women, they're going to figure out a way to do it. And we have to yeah. figure out ways to stop them. Like it's just, um, and simultaneously, I, I still believe in, being able to change hearts and minds and that that is part of what learning can do for you is it yeah. opens up, you know, new ways to think about things and new information you didn't have before. But it's really hard sometimes I think to say, Oh, they just don't have information. I mean, I don't know. It's both hard to say in an era of such massive access to information, but also I know people are in like information silos where they're yeah. the algorithms are taking them down holes that are not helpful. So I don't know. It's just, yeah. Sometimes Gross. more access hmm. just becomes more problematic. Interesting. Anyway, so I think that maybe that's a good place to stop as the background to it. And then yeah. next time we will get into like how it ramped back up, how it eventually got reintroduced into a Congress yeah. that then passed it. And then what happened after the passing it and all that. Cause we got to get into Phyllis Schlafly. We got to get <sighs> into that woman. But shockingly, she doesn't come around until after it's passed Congress. Like she materializes after that. Anyway, it's all, there's still a lot of very interesting things. So I can't um, wait. Yes. We will do part two of the equal rights amendment next time. Do some Thank you so looking much. into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, all and right, don't guys. we, we don't say this enough, but please subscribe, like rate it. The, and I'm talking about the podcast. I don't know what else I would be talking about, but <laughs> we so appreciate that because that's how it gets on people's radars. Share it, tell people about it. If you're enjoying it, if you like listening to this and you want people to talk to you, start like a podcast club instead of a book club and listen to episodes and get together with people and talk about it. But we so appreciate people spreading yes. the word. Um, that means a lot. And, and if you will just write like, like a two line, something even blurb with your Apple podcast review, that helps a lot too, to mm. get things boosted up. So if you feel so inclined, push the little button. If you have Apple podcasts, that's the only way it works. We apologize to other <laughs> platforms. We're sorry. We would still like your support and follow our Instagram page too, at that's our right. dirty laundry podcast. Cause we're getting more stuff up on there. That's so. right. Thank you for okay. listening, as always. All right. We'll see you next Talk week. Talk to you next time. Bye. Bye. Yay. Okay. I-